Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. Motives matter, don't they? John Piper described this many years ago now in a a way that that has always really stuck with me. He writes, this is from his book, Desiring God. He writes, considering the the analogy, consider the analogy of a wedding anniversary. Familiar analogy. He says, mine is on December 21st. Suppose on this day, I bring home a dozen long-stemmed red roses for Noel, his wife. When she meets me at the door, I hold out the roses and she says, Oh, Johnny, they're beautiful, thank you. And gives me a big hug. Then suppose I I hold up my hands in a matter-of-fact sort of way and reply, Don't mention it, it's my duty. How would any self-respecting wife respond to that? I think she would say, whoa, it's, it's my duty? Is that the best that you can do? Can't we all just discern how in this scenario, motives matter, right? In that very real life situation. It wasn't enough that John did the, the quote-unquote right thing by bringing his wife roses on their anniversary, somehow this gesture fell woefully short. Why is that? It's because motives matter. John Piper continues, he says, dutiful roses are a contradiction of terms. If I'm not moved by a spontaneous affection for my wife as a person, the roses do not honor her. In fact, they belittle her. They are a very thin covering for the fact that she does not have the worth or beauty in my eyes to kindle affection. All I can muster is a calculated expression of marital duty. Motives are tricky things, aren't they? But they are so important, really, in any relationship, including your relationship with God. My goal this morning, we're going to be beginning a a new five-week sermon series, sort of a topical series on the topic of motivation. I've entitled it Motivated. And my goal this morning here at the outset of this little topical sermon series is to simply impress upon you why motives matter in our relationship with God. And I have a couple four points for you this morning. First, motives matter because they can secretly spoil. I'm so appreciative that my food is, is stamped with an expiration date. Aren't you glad, glad for that? You know, um, I got, uh, Drew got me in the habit this summer of, of having some fresh milk, but there was no expiration date on that thing, right? Um, I, I compulsively checked the expiration date on the store-bought milk. Um, 
Have you ever had one of those expiration dates let you down? Right? You, it says on the outside that it should still be good, but man, you take a whiff of it and boom, you know, it's turned. The date stamped on the outside says it's good, but that doesn't matter when you take one whiff of, of what's inside, right? What's inside matters, not just what's on the outside. And our, our obedience to God is kind of like that. We, we kind of tend to fixate on the externals sometimes. We, we fixate on, on those things that, the, the what God requires of us. You know, did we do the right thing? But of equal importance is why you did what you did in your relationship with God. God expects us to do the right thing and to do it for the right reason. Both the external act and the internal motivation need to be pure in order for our obedience to be acceptable in his eyes. Don't get me wrong, God does care about what you do, right? He cares about what you do. The the external action is very important. Uh, Doing the wrong thing is still very wrong, right? Regardless of what's going on in your heart, you don't want to do the wrong thing. Even if you do something sincerely with the best motives, if it's the wrong action, you're still wrong. There's an example of this from Scripture that always comes to my mind when I'm trying to make this point. And that's the example of a a man named Uzzah from the Old Testament. It's not a very well-known story, perhaps. Um, Uzzah was tasked with driving a, a new cart that had been constructed for the transportation of the Ark of the Covenant up into the city of David. And David was very excited about this. It was to be a joyous occasion. He gathered together 30,000 chosen men of Israel to, to go up with him into, the, into his city and be rejoicing as they brought in the ark. And here was Uzzah, one of the men, sitting on the cart, driving the ark of, of the Lord up into the city of David. I'm going to pick up the story here in 2 Samuel chapter 6 and just read a couple of verses, verses 5 through 7. It says, And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they come to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now here comes the surprising part, verse 7. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. Uzzah did something really sincere, didn't he? He did something with really good motives. He didn't want the ark of God to fall into the dirt and mud. But that doesn't change the fact that Uzzah did the wrong external action. He touched the ark. God said not to do that. In Numbers chapter, I wrote this down, Numbers chapter 14, I believe it is. Oh no, Numbers chapter 4 in verse 15. You couldn't just touch the ark of God any old way and you had to be a certain person at a certain time of year to be able to do it. You see, even though Uzzah's motives were good, he still did the wrong thing. It's possible to be sincerely wrong. 
And so even though this is going to be a sermon series on motives, talking about your internal motivation for what you do, I don't want to just skim over the fact that it is important to know what to do. Right? That external action is important. It's important to know what is the will of the Lord. But on the other hand, God doesn't just care about what you do. He also cares about why you do it. And the truth of this is just threaded throughout all of Scripture. Um, I'm just going to limit myself to one brief Old Testament example and one New Testament example. First, the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 1. In the, in the book of Isaiah chapter 1, uh, the prophet Isaiah is sent to his own people and he's challenging them on their motives. Uh, God says to them in, in verse 11, he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices? Now remember, God had commanded the Israelites to make these sacrifices. And he says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? He says, bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assemblies. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. He says, when you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen because your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. These people were worshiping God and then walking out of the temple and engaging intentionally in sin. The, the motives of their hearts in offering those sacrifices to God were false. It was, it was just like John offering to his wife roses, but then saying it was my duty. Thank you very much. Checked that box. The Lord was not pleased with their sacrifices. It's, like I said, this is all throughout the Bible. If you flip over to the New Testament, per perhaps the most significant example of this is in the life of Jesus. Jesus himself consistently confronted the Pharisees for this very thing, right? For their hypocrisy. Uh, I thought of Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4. Just so you could almost drop in anywhere in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus is talking about this. He says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. He called those who, who do this, the, the Pharisees, he called them hypocrites. In fact, we even have taken that word up and we will say, hey, that was pharisaical of you, right? That was hypocritical of you. You're doing one thing, but it really inside you means something else. Motives matter because they can secretly spoil an action that would otherwise be considered righteous. Motives matter. Secondly, motives matter because 
God looks at the heart, and this really is just intertwined with everything I was just saying. You know, I, I have in my home a smart speaker. You know what these things are? Like a, uh, an Amazon, mine is a, uh, through Amazon, I can't remember the name of it, an Echo Dot, right? And it's plugged into the wall, and it's hooked up to the internet, and it has this microphone on it, and it's always listening to me and my family, right? And at a moment's no notice, I can speak to it, and it will answer a question or it will perform some sort of a service for me. It'll do something for me, right? And now I know some of you are sitting there shaking your heads thinking, Pastor Stan, that's crazy. I'm not, I would not have one of those in my home. I'm not going to let someone listen to me all the time. And you're probably right. It's probably, it probably, there probably is some reason for concern there. But you know what? People that get all worked up about that maybe never stop to consider that there is one who sees and hears everything that you do all the way down to the very level of your heart. God sees your heart. Your heart is not private. God sees it. The psalmist expressed this point so beautifully. It can be a comfort to us as believers because we realize God has seen what's in our heart, and yet he has forgiven us and accepted us. But if you've never come to God to be forgiven of your sins, this should terrify you. God sees your heart. Psalm 139 says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down, and you are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. There's no fooling God. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, describes the Word of God in a very piercing way. I just love these verses. It says, For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. The Word of God exposes us. You know, as I read the Word of God, sometimes maybe you've had this experience too. You, you read something and God uses his Word to sort of point something out in your heart that, man, my, my motives were off on that. God's Word has the ability to pierce down to your heart and to sift through the motives of your heart and to call you out. 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 7, as the Lord sent the prophet Samuel to anoint David. Uh, you know, David was uh, the, the youngest of all of his brothers, and one by one the brothers come before Samuel, and the Lord says, no, not him. I know he's, he's strong and he's the tallest and all these sorts of things, but it's not him, it's not him, it's not him. And then he comes down in verse 7 and he says, uh, he, he, he brings David before him and it, and it says, For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Now, I make this point here that, um, that it should startle us that the Lord looks on the heart because, frankly, our motives stink. <laughs> All of us, right? Our motivations, our heart motivations stink. And that, that brings me to my third point, that motives matter. So 
really our hearts had to be redeemed. Had to be redeemed. Hopefully you remember from our study in the book of Genesis not that long ago, the, the sweeping summary of the depravity of the hearts of men that we, we encountered right before God sent the flood on the earth. In, in chapter 6, uh, Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, the, it, it says this, that the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It's like one of the most <laughs> comprehensive statements of you know, just the depravity of our hearts and the depravity of our motivations, I think, in all of Scripture. Even the best of human motives falls short. Even the motives that seem altruistic to us, the ones that seem unselfish and humble, they fall short. Unless the motives of your heart are God-glorifying, God-loving, God-trusting, God-fearing, God-delighting, it falls short. Because that's the motives that God wants to have coming out of our heart through what we do. If you do something good, but you do it not for the glory of God, then you're doing it for the glory of someone else. If you're doing something good, but you're not doing it for the love of God, then you're doing it for the love of someone or something else. All of our motives stink. And so God sees our hearts. He sees our motives. He sees that they're, they're terrible. And he realized that our hearts needed to be redeemed. So he sent his son Jesus to redeem us from our own hearts. Jesus is the only one that has always done the right thing for the right reason. Can you imagine that? Always doing what's right and not just always doing externally what's right, but inside your heart, beneath that external act, the milk isn't sour, the meat hasn't turned, right? What's inside is just as good. That's who Jesus is, inside and out. Even when we think we're doing pretty good by the standards we've set for ourselves, we look into God's Word and we realize, man, we've set the bar way too low. God's standard is way up there in the air somewhere, out of reach. We needed Jesus to die on the cross for our stinking bad motives so that we could be cleansed. But oftentimes, we, we try to clean ourselves up, don't we? And this is futile. It's like trying to clean a white shirt with, with dirty hands. I'm looking at Lenny right now because Lenny's a plumber and Lenny knows about dirty hands, right? You don't, you don't try to clean a white shirt after you've been plumbing all day, do you? No, you, you don't do that, right? The more you try to clean, your sh clean the, the shirt off, the dirtier things get. So let me just say here at the outset of this sermon series that the point of this sermon series is not going to be, hey, you better shape up your own motives and make them better. You better dig deep and you better start feeling the right things. You can't do that. Right? You, if you draw upon the own motives of your own heart, what's going to come out of that is going to be selfish. What's going to come out of that is going to be fleshly. What's going to come out of that is going to be wrong. You need a completely new heart. And that's at the, the base of this entire study that we're going to do on, our, on heart's motivations. 
Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by, the, by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. You don't need to try to feel the right things towards God. You need, you need to be redeemed by His grace. Trust me, being redeemed taps you into a whole new source of motivation. And that, that brings me to my final point this morning. Motives matter to children of God. Motives matter to children of God. You know, we don't do the good things that we do as Christians, as children of God, so that God will accept us, as if that were even possible. We do good things because, because God has accepted us and is changing us. I thought of uh, from the New Testament, the book of Titus, Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This expresses this idea from Scripture, I think, just so well. It says, For the grace of God has appeared. And I love that. I love in the book of Titus how Paul talks about the grace of God sort of appearing. Because that's the way it, it appears and it happens in our life. We, we were dead in our sins and suddenly, you know, by the grace of God, his, he, he shows up. His grace shows up in our life. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for himself, a people for his own possession, and here it is, who are zealous for good works. We don't do good things so that God will accept us, but guess what? When the grace of God appears in our life, we suddenly have a zeal for good works because of what God has done in our lives. Who we are as children of God profoundly changes and even intensifies our motives for obedience. And that change, I would say, is drastic. It's the difference between a slave obeying a, a, a taskmaster and a son pleasing his beloved father. It's that drastic of a difference. Think about the different motivations that you would have between those two different people in obeying someone that was over them. Imagine a slave kept outside in the cold, outside in, in some cold, drafty slave quarters, obeying out of fear and in a dim hope of one day maybe earning his freedom or else maybe finding a way to, to sneak away and escape from that situation. Think about the motives for obeying your master in that situation. That slave's motives for obeying his master is way different from that of a son. Now imagine an orphan slave who suddenly finds that he's been not only redeemed out of slavery at a very steep and personal cost, but also that he's been promptly adopted and welcomed into the family. 
It might be cold and drafty and lonely outside, but he quickly finds himself inside the home, a place around the family table near the warmth of the fire and the comfort of a homemade meal that's been prepared just for him. Imagine the difference in motivation as we find ourselves suddenly by the grace of God adopted into the family of God. We find ourselves already in a position of being forgiven, beloved, washed, strengthened, and filled. God's countenance towards us is forever changed. We find ourselves filled with new and refreshing motives that could not even have been imagined in our old life. And suddenly we find there is a love and a joy and a peace and a freedom and a respect in obeying our Heavenly Father. And that's where many of us are this morning, right? Many of us who who meet here week in and week out worshiping the Lord, we have been gloriously saved from our our, our former way, way of life. We've been saved from our sins and our unbelief. He has lavished you with grace. He has filled you with his love. He has adopted you as a son or a daughter. And you just want to do the right thing for the right reason, don't you? You just want to please your heavenly Father. And yet so many times, still, in spite of all that he has done for us, we find that we still lack the proper motivation to obey our Father whom we love. Why is that? What is supposed to motivate you as a child of God? God's word describes many motivations, doesn't it? I mean, it'd be an interesting exercise for you to go home today and to think through what sort of motivations do I read in the New Testament or in the whole Bible for why I should obey God? Just make a list. Like, what is supposed to motivate me as a child of God? And I I could list some things like love, fear, Reward, loss of reward, blessings, punishment, discipline, just to name a few. How do you make sense of all that? And how can you be driven by all these different things? Are any of them more important than some of the others? How do they interrelate to one another? These are some of the things we're going to be looking at in this sermon series. God's word is is full of instruction about not just what to do as a child of God, but why you should do it. And I would say it's a lot easier to know what you should be doing than to be properly motivated to actually do it. Haven't you heard it? I think I've said it before that um, most Christians are educated beyond their point of obedience. Isn't that true? Don't you know more about what you should be doing than you're actually motivated to do? And, and, and don't we long to, to be more motivated, to, uh, to be more compelled to, towards Christ-likeness? Don't we long to be holy? Over the next several weeks, we're going to just talk about three biblical motivations. We're going to talk about love. We're going to spend two weeks on fear. And then we're going to talk about rewards. I think it's going to be interesting. I think it's going to be helpful as God uh, allows us to dive into his word on these topics and to understand what should be driving us as Christians. Don't you want to put the best fuel in your car to get you down the road? Right? You know, this time of year we're all maybe trying to shed a few pounds from the holidays. They say that it's not enough just to 
to go and expend your energy in the gym, you, you need to, 80% of, of losing that weight is, is what you're putting inside your body, right? I mean, uh, you, you need to have the proper motivation. You need to have the proper fuel to get fit and to get healthy. Same thing is true spiritually. We want to know what the best fuel is for the Christian life, and then we want to fuel our spiritual zeal for God with that which is best. So let me challenge you this morning to begin, even now, to ask yourself these questions. Ask God these questions. God, what is motivating me in my relationship with you? What's driving me currently? And what are the best motivations to propel me towards Christ-likeness? How, God, can I do the right thing for the right reasons? But as you do that, let me caution you that in asking you to examine your own heart, I want you to be careful that you don't become self-absorbed. Right? Don't become a, a navel gazer, you know, staring at your belly button and wondering, oh, woe is me with your head down. Right? As you look within and ask God to, to probe your heart, do it as a matter of prayer and turn to the Lord with whatever you find there. We pray prayers like Psalm 19, O Lord, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Heart motives matter to God. Do they matter to you? Let's pray.